0: Hello, I'm Tyler Wall, and this is the Missionary District Podcast, Episode 3, Secularism, the Incarnation of Jesus, and here is Amos. Hey
1: everybody, I'm Deacon Amos.
0: So Amos, we have uh, obviously talked a little bit about secularism already, and now we're moving on to the Incarnation of Jesus. Do you want to explain what this is all about?
1: Yes, I do. Yeah, today we want to talk about the incarnation of Jesus and kind of how the intuitions of secularism lead us to misunderstand the union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ. So, one of the things we talked about last time is that the, the sort of the default philosophical position of the public sphere in secular society is something that we could call naturalism. This is the underlying assumption of the empirical sciences. And it essentially says that existence is within the bounds of space and time. And so when we talk about existence from within the worldview of secularism, existence is uh, what we might call uh, univocal, which literally means having one voice or one sound. There's only one way that something or someone can possibly exist. There there just are no other options, and we're not open to other options. So I, I kind of likened it last time to a metaphysical flattener that sort of compresses everything and tries to force it into a single plane of existence. And from within this worldview, there's just no way to even approximate something that is truly transcendent, something that is truly above or beyond the natural order. And so, you know, when Richard Dawkins, for example, who is a prominent atheist, tries to come up with an analogy for God the thing he comes up with is, is ridiculous. Uh, he, he says things like, you believe in the God of Abraham, I believe in the flying spaghetti monster. And uh, he really thinks that the two are equivalent in, in some way. But all, all that he's really done is imagined another creature. He's just thought up the strangest, most elusive creature that he can imagine and given it a name because his understanding of God requires that God be a creature because he just can't break out of the imminent frame uh, that we've talked about. He thinks, you know, if I can't put God under a microscope, then he doesn't exist. But of course, as Christians, we would say, if you can put God under a microscope, then he's not God, because God's not made of atoms. He's not a material being, and he's not subject to our whims like that.
0: And and actually, that, that goes to show that we actually agree with atheists on a lot of points. We actually agree that God god is not a created being which an atheist would say well well uh god doesn't exist because he's not a creature and we actually agree on those things which is kind of odd to say out loud (laughs) but (laughs) but when you're coming from from a false beginning then it's uh it kind of shows that yeah we actually agree and sometimes when we have conversations with people that aren't believers it might be more beneficial to identify the things that we actually agree on first so that you can have at least a base understanding of where you're starting from. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair.
0: And earlier you were talking about like this metaphysical flattening. And tell me if I'm right in my analogy, would this be similar to like uh, an XY grid in which uh, you you have a plotted line but the line is actually only on the X and not on the Y?
1: Yeah, maybe something like that. Okay. Or maybe if you think of our three dimensions of space, length, width, and height. X, Y, Z, yeah. Yeah, and just take out the height. Right, okay. Yeah, everything sort of exists on that one, you know, between zero and one, say. Yeah,
0: so it's like two-dimensional. Right. Yeah, okay.
1: Maybe something like that. (laughs) Well, of course, (laughs)
0: most of the analogies that you come up with fail in many ways, but sometimes... A simplified analogy sometimes helps a little bit anyway.
1: Yeah. So kind of the point of, of saying all that is to really emphasize uh, the transcendence of God. God is, is transcendent. He's really very different than anyone or anything else. And even that phrasing is a bit misleading because it kind of suggests that God is able to be categorized by familiar concepts. And he can't. God is completely and totally other. So without his help, we can't relate to him. We can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't understand him. We can't measure him. We can't know him. Uh, we can't describe him. Really, we, we don't even know where to begin to imagine him. And so we often talk about God in the negative. We talk about God being invisible, immaterial, incomprehensible, unknowable, uncreated, and, and all of these things are there to sort of help us to feel our way towards some understanding of God's transcendence or his holiness or his otherness. And I think this is something that gets misunderstood a lot and underestimated even more. The Nicene Creed says that, that God is the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And that line is important. All things visible and invisible. Um, It's important because if we don't remember that, then we end up thinking that God is a spiritual being in the same sense that maybe angels are spiritual beings or something like that. But that's not what we mean when we say that God is spirit. Uh, Our language is just limited. and. We don't really even understand angels. And so we just kind of put God in that same category. But we can't forget that angels are created too. They're creatures as well. And so when we say that God who created all things, visible and invisible, exists, we mean something else entirely.
0: Yeah. You know, an example of this is when, uh, when Moses is at the burning bush and Moses asks a question, which is a perfectly reasonable question, like, well, who is this? Right. And and the answer that he gets back is, I am who I am. Uh, basically saying that they can't be defined. Right. And it's like setting this framework of God is being itself. He is being. He's not even, uh, he can't be categorized. He's not even in the genus of being because he is that. Yeah. Um, what are some other things? Like, so we're saying that God is different. Is what we're saying. Really different. Really different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like something that we can't even fathom. And that the smartest minds on earth have difficulty with this concept because I think I think the smarter you are, the more you want to categorize things and you want things to fit nicely into a little package and God just doesn't. He refuses. Yeah. Which is I kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we can't reason our way to God, to an understanding of God. He's just so other. He's so different. He's so, uh, there's, there's nothing like him in creation. Mm-hmm. And that's why every analogy about him falls apart at some point.
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah. Although I find them useful in certain ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, a very real sense in which we only know God through analogy, mm-hmm. but they still break down.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's similar to, uh, I think we talked about this in, in a previous podcast, uh, the only way that we can know something, uh, just like seeing seeing shadows on a cave wall where we don't know what the light source is, we don't know what's causing the shadow, but we can still experience both of those things by looking at the shadow. It might not be true what we're seeing or how we're interpreting it, but we're seeing those shadows and that you know the analogies almost feel like those shadows on the wall. Can you explain more uh, this this distinction between uh, creator and created?
1: Maybe, um, I mean, there there is an essential distinction between uh, creator and created. Um, so, in other words, uh, God's essence is altogether different from our own. The God who created all things cannot be bound by His creation. Or made of the same stuff so so God's being his existence is not just an elevated version of humanity's mode of being but it's a completely different kind of being and so you know when Christians say that God exists we don't mean that he exists in the same way that a watermelon exists he's totally separate from his creation he's not limited to the confines of spatial dimensions or the passage of time or things like that so his existence if that's even the right word, is of a different sort. And uh, sometimes you'll hear a snarky theologian say something like, God doesn't exist. And personally, I think that's a stupid way to try to make the point because you know God is existence itself. He is the ground of all being. Uh, but the point that they're trying to make is that God's existence is, is of a different kind. If all we have to go on is a secular definition of existence, then yeah, God doesn't exist. Like you were saying earlier, we, we, we'd we actually agree with an atheist on that. We, we can't cram him into a secular worldview and pretend that he fits there mm-hmm. because he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably helpful for us to have different terms to distinguish these things. So uh, I'm just going to call God's form of existence uh, eternal or divine existence as, as we go on talking here. And hopefully that way we can talk about, you know, the transcendence of God without needing to spend... 10 or 15 minutes every time talking about how utterly (laughs) mind-blowingly transcendent he really is every single time.
0: That's fun, though. (laughs) It is fun. Yeah,
1: I do like it. Um, So when when we talk about eternal existence, we're talking about a fundamentally different kind of existence than we would normally think of. And so we can contrast that with empirical or temporal existence, which is what we're used to thinking of. And so when we think about uh, the Christian worldview— Existence is not univocal, and this is really important. It's not uniform. So there's at least two ways that something can exist, physically, empirically, temporally. uh, That's one way. And eternally or divinely, that's another way. And so eternal in this sense, and I think in the biblical sense, doesn't mean a really, really long period of time. Uh, It's something else. It's something we don't really understand, something that's truly transcendent, truly above The entire created order visible and invisible
0: yeah that that's really interesting Um, and yet our prayer life I would say the vast majority of the prayers I hear sit in this realm
1: what do you mean by that
0: of the 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 physical the Imperial the temporal Uh, Lord help me in this time Uh, Lord uh, give me wisdom uh, you know, think of any prayers that you hear about. This is the, this is the the realm in which prayers exist. I think mostly because that's our experience, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the realm we're in.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it makes sense. But how could this? How how might this change our prayers if we are to um, to think more in this way of? that there's another realm that there you know that the spiritual realm has this effect on on our realm and i i'm trying to find language around this and i and i'm finding it difficult
1: yeah i think um maybe more than trying to keep you know say the physical and the eternal really distinctly separate uh within the christian worldview we're going to find sort of an, an infusion of the two, a, a combination of the two that they, they overlay on top of one another. Mm-hmm. And so when, when we're, we're talking about, you know, the things that matter to us, there's a, a spiritual dimension, uh, even though we're, we're concerned with physical things, there's a spiritual dimension to our prayers uh, mm-hmm. that maybe we're not always aware of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I'm kind of kind of hinting at and, and maybe, pondering. And maybe it's just a question to ponder. Maybe it's just one of those things where it's like, well, could this, should this, does it even need to affect my prayer life? Should I be praying in in this way where it's more, uh, and I don't even know how to pray. I wouldn't even know how to pray that way. <laughs> 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 to pray in the the temporally. I mean, you could pray for for my grandparents, I guess the ones that have died and just pray back and just, well, cause if God is not temporally bound. Right. My prayers for my grandparents could go heated and yeah. I, okay. My brain's starting to hurt <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think now that, that we've sort of nailed down uh, the transcendence of God, we, we can start to talk about the implications of that. and, of first importance is the fact that these ways of existing are not mutually exclusive. They're not in competition with one another. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In uh, Matthew chapter one, verse twenty-three, it says, "Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us." So, in Jesus, this is this is the incarnation. It's talking about in Jesus, the eternal, uncreated God became flesh and dwelt among us. He is God with us. The eternal God began to exist within space and time. And so when we say that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, we really mean it. Like it's not just a linguistic trick. It's not just semantics. We really and truly believe it. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And the natures of Christ are not in competition with one another. To have more humanity does not mean that there is less divinity or vice versa. It's not like when Jesus is doing miracles that he's acting as God, and when he's praying, he's acting as man. He's fully God and fully man. The one uh, hypostasis, to use the technical language, the one person has two natures, and they are both perfectly intact and lacking nothing.
0: Yeah, this isn't uh, like binary code, where it's one or an O. Right, right and they can only exist as one, or the O, and it can't exist as both at the same time. That's right, yeah. Yeah, this is both I and O, both at the same time, Right. divine and human, yeah.
1: Yeah, when when we look at the Incarnation through the worldview of secularism, we really want to say, you know, either that Jesus is God and then deny his humanity, uh, and that's uh, maybe sort of a Gnostic bent, or to say that Jesus is man and and fully deny his divinity, and so that might be something like adoptionism, uh, at least if you're trying to maintain the miraculous elements. Uh, or the third option is that he's somehow half and half. And that might be Arianism or uh, any kind of paganism. Uh, so he, he's something like a demigod. And, and we really want to do that because we're trying to make it intelligible, but we're stuck within the framework of imminence. And we say, well, this is ridiculous. One plus one cannot equal one. One human nature plus one divine nature cannot equal one person, but but that's only true on the secular worldview, on on a univocal metaphysical outlook. From from the Christian perspective, the human nature of Jesus and the divine nature of Jesus are categorically different things, and they can overlap with one another. It's kind of like saying uh, that a ball can't be red because it's round. Redness and roundness don't actually impinge upon one another. Now, again, as we were saying, every analogy about God breaks down pretty quickly, so don't take that too far. But just to state the one point uh, as clearly as we can, the humanity and divinity of Jesus are not mutually exclusive. They don't impinge upon or limit one another. Mm -hmm. And this is the Christian worldview, an incarnational worldview, an understanding of the world that is not only informed by the incarnation of Jesus, But takes that as its starting place so why is all that important because if jesus isn't fully god and fully man then we're not saved the nicene creed says that the purpose of the incarnation is for us and for our salvation in in first corinthians chapter 15 verse 22 it says for as in adam all die so also in christ shall all be made alive and you can explore that theme more uh, in Romans chapter 5 as well. But, but what does that mean? I think, I think when we're born, in a sense, we enter into Adam. We receive biological life. When we are reborn in the waters of baptism, we enter into Christ. We participate in his nature. We receive his life, the eternal life of the Son of God. And it's a wholly different kind of life. We become participants in a new kind of humanity, the humanity of Jesus. And this is a humanity that has conquered death and has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. So the the purpose of God becoming man is to then draw all men up into the eternal life of the Son of God. C.S. Lewis uh, says it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And he's almost quoting from St. Athanasius, who stated the point a little bit more bluntly. He says, God became man, that man might become God. And that last statement is easily misunderstood if we take it in isolation from its context. But this is a very firmly established doctrine. This is known as uh, deification or glorification. The East calls it theosis. Uh, Some people call it sanctification. And it does not mean that we become gods ourselves or that we are anything independently of Christ. It means that through union with Jesus, we are fully incorporated into God's being. Because we have been made one with Christ in baptism, we are drawn up with him in his ascension into the divine life. And that's salvation, full participation in the divine life, the eternal life of the Son of God. So if Jesus isn't fully man, then we're not redeemed because it means that he took some other kind of flesh with him when he ascended into heaven. If Jesus isn't fully God, then we're not redeemed because our union is with something that is less than God. And so in order to keep the integrity of the doctrine of salvation intact, we must maintain that there is full humanity and full divinity in the one person of Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, um... And I think, you know, you can, you can distill that why did Jesus come into, and I think you said it, to fully participate in divine life, the eternal life with the Son of God. Um, and I think it kind of begs the question, why didn't he come? Because I think we, we sometimes impart our own human failings onto why did Jesus come? Uh, Things like, well, so that I'll have a nice, comfortable life. So that I'll have, uh, I guess, what is salvation? What am I being saved from? Is maybe a more poignant way of saying it. Right. And I think secularism and the groundwater that we were talking about, I think actually feeds into a lot of how that plays out in our lives. uh, And it makes us question for instance in times such as these when you know there's war uh, people are losing their jobs um people are struggling in their marriages well where's my salvation in this and they impart that salvation onto the physical things of uh well do I have enough money is my house big enough is my car big enough right uh things like that and and my my belief is that he didn't come for the salvation of those things he came for the salvation of our souls like what 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 is your take on that
1: i mean in in one sense we we have to say that that the lord cares about you know our well-being certainly the thing of utmost importance is our union with god and so that is uh, as as the Creed says, he came for us and for our salvation. He came to reconcile man back to God. And that is that is fundamentally uh, the purpose um, of his coming. Um, I think, I don't know, I think you could get really ascetic if, if you think that that's the only reason that he came and that he doesn't care about anything else. I think there's maybe a little bit of a danger there where where you would head into some form of extreme asceticism mm-hmm. because nothing else matters, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not true either. No, no. Um, the There's many
0: f- scriptures that back that up too. Right. Yeah. The right. Christian
1: faith is embodied. Right. It, it's not. It's not just about um, the spiritual things, but but about the physical things as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, in some ways, about the marriage between the two and finding the spiritual significance in. Uh, and through the physical things that we encounter.
0: and there, Well, there's tension there, correct? Yeah. Yeah, there's tension between the, that. Uh, and some might say that it's provision. And maybe this salvation isn't from a life of hardship, but there's provision in a life of hardship.
1: Yeah, and that provision could be uh, the grace of the Lord's presence mm-hmm. uh, at some points, and, and it could be food and sustenance at, at other points, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Lord has a different journey in mind for, for each of us, it seems.
0: Yes. Okay, thank you. I know that was a tough question. Right? I don't know
1: yeah. if I fully answered your question. Did I? Can you fully answer that question? Well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I think that's the, that's the point, is that... <laughs> but it's important to think about those things because, you know, uh, we can think about philosophical things all day long and have great discussions, but they do have, uh, there's a certain sense that the rubber must meet the road at some point.
1: Right. Or does it become relevant for my life? Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. And, and to test it against, against things in my life, uh, uh, when hardship comes to, to be okay with testing it, to be okay with, with struggling with it, to be okay Uh, crying out to God and saying, God, why? Why is this happening? To ask other people, to ask people like you, uh, well, why is my life so hard? What's going on? Does God not love me? Uh, And we can have answers for that, and we might not have answers for that. But I I I think it's important that we ask those questions and that this is a safe place to ask those questions because it's in the house of God where I think anyone who's going to be afraid of those questions, uh, it isn't God. And he he wants us to bring those things to him every time, uh, and, and bring it to our, to his body. Um, and so I just, yeah, I I guess that's an, it's just an encouragement for anybody out there who, who has these kind of questions because deep philosophical questions are deep and they affect us fundamentally. It like, it's like putting Kool-Aid in the groundwater, so to speak. Like we're, when you're talking about deep philosophical questions, you're actually stirring your groundwater and saying, well, what, what have I been drinking? Right. And assessing whether it's healthy or not. And then trying to, and then you're never going to fully purge yourself of the groundwater, but taking in the good as best you can while expelling the bad as best you can.
1: Yeah. I think, um, one of the things I really love about the Psalms uh, is just their brutal honesty. Mm, yeah. And, and this is the prayer book that, that the Lord has given us uh, in the scriptures uh, as his people, that, that we can actually use the Psalms uh, as a pattern of prayer mm-hmm. and, and to pray, you know, those words when we don't have words ourselves uh, or, or to similarly cry out to God in brutal honesty uh, mm-hmm. about what we're going through, about our situation, about the things maybe that we don't understand, and uh, he can handle it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I appreciate that encouragement.
0: Yeah. So anyway, I think, I think we need a summary at this point.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, so here's kind of what we talked about today is that uh, the worldview of secular society is metaphysically flat. It's one-dimensional. And as such, it radically misunderstands the transcendence of God, which also produces misunderstandings when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, A Christian or incarnational worldview acknowledges at least two different kinds of existence, empirical, temporal existence, and eternal or divine existence. And since they are categorically different things, it's possible to exist both empirically and eternally without contradiction. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And furthermore, we can describe our own salvation as incorporation into the divine or eternal life of the Son of God. And in so doing, we are in some ways embodying in ourselves the truth of the Incarnation, maintaining our own human nature while participating in his divine nature. And I'm sure you can see where that goes. You know, to call the church the body of Christ, for example, is not just a metaphor, although it is that. Uh, it's deeper than that. It speaks of this infusion of divine life into our ordinary humanity, or, or perhaps uh, the call upwards into the divine life of, of the Son of God.
0: Yes, and uh, I just I love the metaphor of the body of Christ. I tend to like the metaphors the Bible uses most, probably because it's inspired by God.
1: I think that's fair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I come up with other ones and they're just terrible, but um, I just I like I like the, the the metaphor of the body because in this age of secularism of this separation, I've gone back to that metaphor often in in describing unity to people. Right, uh, and I just I find it that it it allows people to anchor onto something. Uh, to describe unity. And I, I've said before, like walking, when you're walking, uh, your arms are actually moving in opposite directions. Your feet are moving in opposite directions. And yet they are both going in the same direction and they'll end up in the same place. and And I find that similar with unity. Like uh, in churches, we can be, it can seem like we're moving in opposite directions. Right. But when the head of the church is Christ, then will end up in in the right spot. Jumping back, though, also to, uh, you know, you talked about this metaphysically flat, uh, one-dimensional. I encourage the listeners to go and look into uh, the fourth dimension and fifth dimension. Uh, I have a great app on my iPad that actually describes the fourth dimension and the fifth dimension, and it's nothing short of mind-boggling to think of... Uh, These other dimensions that surpass... We can't see them. And it's similar to the the shadow on the wall. We can't see them. Uh, The shadow on the wall is actually two-dimensional, a projection of a three-dimensional object onto a two-dimensional surface. Someone in the, the second dimension can only see a line because if you're in the second dimension, when you look at something that maybe has been drawn out, like a circle, you're actually only seeing a line. But someone in the third dimension can see that circle. And so similarly, in the fourth dimension, we may see three-dimensional objects, but there's this other dimension that someone in, in the fourth dimension can see that we can't because all we can see is a 3D object. That's and it, interesting. Yes, it's very interesting. Uh,
1: Do you have, uh, I don't know, a link to a website? or?
0: Yes. Uh, weirdly, the app uh, is on iOS, and it's called, wait for it, you might can get a pen and a paper, because it's a really long name. Four <laughs> D. <4D. laughs> and that that that's the name of the app. Uh it's it's kind of a guided app, but it's three dimensional and it and it kind of walks you through it four dimensional It'll take you about ten minutes to go through it. Once you've gone through it once, you're done. And that's all it's a free app. So Interesting. Have fun. Four D. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks, Amos.
1: Thank you, Tyler. And uh Thanks for listening, everybody. And again, if you want to get in touch, missionarydistrict at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, hear your questions and feedback. Thank you. See you next time.